Alright, the rest of you, I'd invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there might be one in the seat back in front of you, or you can raise your hand. Also, you should have received a little half sheet on the way in for some notes if you are into that sort of thing. How many of you in this room are or have been pregnant before? Raise your hand for a moment. Okay. <laughs> Laura almost shouted a hearty amen uh, up here. Due in May. And uh, we're excited to, to welcome that little one, Laura. Um, those of you who've been pregnant before or are pregnant right now, um, know the feeling and the thoughts that go through your mind wondering what is this little child going to be like? Who are they going to take after? What are the characteristics and all of that? And it's all a great mystery and it's all quite fun for the most part. Easy for me to say I've never been pregnant. Um, but for me, watching my wife be pregnant uh, and dreaming those dreams and feeling those things is, is a, a certainly a, a fun kind of a thing. Uh, our first child came out um, with a crazy look on his face. Um, I remember not being prepared uh, at all for this, having never done it before. But I was uh, watching my son be born. And um, the first sight that I had of this child uh, was this. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, there watching the process, um, rather shocked, uh, as a, a young man with three brothers. And, um, and out comes my son, and, and he is like this. He has one eye open, and he's staring right at me like this. The other one's totally shut, and I kind of like jumped back a little bit, freaked out by this guy a little bit. Um, but, but that started this process of getting to watch this child grow and turn into, you know, uh, who he was going to be. Um, from an early age, I saw some things go on that gave indication of what kind of kid he would be. And isn't it interesting, parents, to see yourselves in your children as they, as they do things? Um, I would go through the grocery store, and it would always take me longer to grocery shop than it used to because Curran, our oldest, would go through, and every single person that, that passed, he had to engage with one of these. And he'd like put his hand, he didn't know how to wave really, but he'd just kind of give this big smile. And, um, and so, of course, people, oh! And they would, you know, come and stop and ask and all this stuff. And I actually just created a little fact sheet after a while. I just handed it to him. I said, here's all the details. We've got to go. No, I didn't. Um, but he was a social kid. And he just, he loved being part of the party. That was something that, that just always was, was true of him. Um, this, the, the second characteristic trait that still is true, he turns 14 soon, um, is that he was always a kid that desired to be first. Um, he was a competitive guy. When he would be on the playground and stuff, uh, we had to kind of train, you know, this into a, uh, we're still working on it, into a way that's, uh, that's workable for a society instead of just being the only person on the planet. Um, but he realized that as he's running, if he ever started to get beat, um, if he shoved the kid, he would still win. Or if he tackled him or whatever else. If someone came and hugged my son uh, when he was young and started to do this at all, like started to do that, Curran would take it up a notch, and he, he could hug stronger and better, so it would always end up with a full-blown body slam, parents arguing. I mean, it was a mess. Uh, it was just a hard thing. But our kid has always been social, and he's always been competitive. Um, one day in the swimming pool, our kids were on the swim team uh, not long ago, and one day in the pool, I kind of watched both of those come together. Uh, he got in the pool and was doing a race. This was at a meet. And, uh, and he swam in such a way that he was, he was way in the lead. And I'm, Dad, I'm videotaping, I'm cheering, you know, yeah. And, and Curran realized that he was out there all alone. And he didn't like, he liked winning, but he wanted to be with the party, too. So I actually watched him. He kind of slowed up, got back in line with the other, with the other kids, 
and then had to go up again. And kind of, so there was this dueling nature of my son. And as I watched that, I thought, boy, that is totally like me. I'm really social and I'm really competitive. Um, and here it is being transferred into my kid. And in one strange thing in the pool, here they are both coming together in some, some sort of strange way. I bring that up because of this. There are certain things in our children. Now, I, I, I chose to give you a positive one. Uh, both of those can be negative, by the way. But, um, but there are also sins of the father that are passed on to your kids. Isn't that shocking to see things go on and you're correcting things in your kid and you go, wow, that's what the Lord's working on me in. That's exactly the correction I need. That's part of pairing that grows us up and challenges us. I bring this up because I did not tell Curran, Curran, I want you to be a social kid. I want you to like people. I'm a pastor. We have lots of people in our home. You need to like people and be around people a lot. That just was how he was. It's as if he couldn't help himself, in essence. And in terms of competitive, I've had other kids uh, who I've tried to make more competitive. I've tried to say, don't you want to win? No, not really. Why not? I mean, I, I don't get that. Like, that didn't, that didn't translate to me. Uh, but... But in Curran, that just was there. That's just, that was his nature. He was, he was born that way, and there wasn't anything necessarily that I said, I'm going to try and instill this in this kid. This morning, what we're going to be talking about is, uh, is really our natures. And Paul's, uh, we're in a section of Scripture that talks about the old nature, and it talks about the new nature. And what I've called this morning is, I can't help myself. And, uh, and, and there's, there's really a lot, of, a lot of truth to just in, in those in that carefully chosen title, um, in terms of how we walk the Christian life. Now, one of the things I'm not going to talk about much at all this morning is a certain tension that's going to exist. The message today is this, that you cannot help yourself in becoming holy. You cannot help yourself in becoming holy. Nor can you help yourself but sin if you don't have Christ in your life. You're only acting by what is natural to you. Your nature, in essence, dictates that. Now, I don't want to sound fatalistic, and we're going to get into some of the nuances of that, but that's the big idea, is that you can't help yourself in this process. The tension lies in this. What about all the places in Scripture where we're given commands and we're to do things? We just got done with a series last year called Demanding, and it's all the things that Jesus demands of his followers. So clearly we're commanded to do things. But I want you to, uh, if you're open to Ephesians 4, flip over a page maybe to Ephesians 5 just for a second. I want you to see the spirit in which we are to do things, the spirit in which we are to uh, engage in these commands. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Are we to do things? Absolutely. So as I talk this morning, know that the message is we can't help ourselves in becoming holy. We can't help ourselves in, 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 um, in thinking differently. At the same time, it doesn't mean that we just sit and vegetate and say, well, the Lord's got to do a work. There's clearly in Scripture a tension there that says, while you have no power to change yourself, you do cooperate or compete with God. We talked about that a little bit last week. So I'm not going to talk any more of this tension, but realize that any of the commands of Scripture, any of the things that we're told to be doing, is in this vein of being an imitator of our Father. In other words, developing, walking, and viewing, and seeing a nature that's been passed on to us 
from our dad, much like when I see in my son him having these natural characteristics that I see in myself. And that's how Paul chose to reveal that. Some of you in this room are very loud sneezers. And I don't know who you are, and I don't want you to raise your hand. We'll just keep that between yourself and your family and your close friends. But some of you sneeze really loud. I'm a loud sneezer. Um, we have we have some uh, some parts of our house that are a little bit echoey, and um, there's literally times when I get sneezing, and that Kathy, our four-year-old, will will cover up her ears because Dad's sneezing, and it's too loud for her, and it hurts her ears and all this stuff. Here's the thing: I can't help it. I really can't. Uh, I, I, I I can't put a muffler on my sneezes. It just they they just come. Here's the interesting interesting thing about sneezing. Have you ever tried to manufacture a sneeze? And I don't know why you would want to. But, but maybe there's a need for that at some point, you know. Um, but if you try to manufacture a sneeze, it just doesn't come off the same, does it? There's, there's not that power. There certainly isn't the spray. I mean, there's just, it, you, you can't, you can, you can kind of do the, you know, you can pretend, but it's not the same as a genuine sneeze, right? It's something that you, when, when you do it, you can't help yourself. I mean, you've been driving along. Ever sneeze like 20 times in a row? Anyone else have this issue? Is that just me? Okay, just me. So I'm driving along, and they say you're blind for a split second when you sneeze. Well, when you do it like 20 times in a row driving down the freeway, it's really kind of scary. I mean, really, it's, you know, duh, 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 okay, I'm over here. But, you know, when you sneeze, you can't help yourself. It's not like you can stop it and just say, I'm going to not sneeze right now. I mean, you can't do it. You really, you literally can't help yourself. What we're talking about spiritually here is not quite the same. I wish it was. Frankly, I wish it was just that easy, that I can't help but walk in my new nature that Christ has given me now that I'm saved and forgiven. But it is a little bit like that. And as we're going to read in the text, as we're going to see it revealed in the text, it really is, in a sense, like you can't help yourself. It's our human nature to sneeze. Okay? I guess part of being a human being is that you sneeze, and it's, it's, um, it's, just, it's just part of, of, of who we are. I want you to answer this question in your own mind for a moment. What, what is it that you can't help yourself from doing? There are many things that you just go, I mean, we say this a lot, I can't help myself, I couldn't help myself, I couldn't stop myself, right? Let me throw a couple out. Now, mind you, if you're in marketing, you know what these are. And there's, there's some generalities out there that someone somewhere is making a ton of money on, because it must be working. One is food. Many in our culture have impulse control of food, there's no question about it. It's readily available everywhere. There are so many places, if, you, if you're a restaurant person, you know, there's so many places just, just put out there to, to, to show you, hey, you can, you can buy here. We go to grocery stores, of course, and, and have all kinds of things. How about your tongue? Not in the use of food, but in the use of speech. Some of you in this room just go, yeah, I really relate with that. I can't help myself. I just keep saying things that I wish I could take back, but, but I can't help myself. My, my, my tongue just gets, gets out there and says things. Some of you with purchases... You say, man, I can't help myself. And to say, to say that you are or aren't maybe a little bit unfair, I think there are certain genres that are really easy for you. Ever drive down Capital Expressway? Um, I have a buddy that is somehow drawn in by the balloons. The balloons make him want to buy a car. A giant American flag makes him want to buy a car. I don't really get it at all. You know, putting that, putting that car up on the block so it's like at an angle that you'll never, ever have it at makes the person just go, man, I need that car right there. I, for one, am not one who's ever suckered in by car salesmen. I don't know what it is. I'm just I'm immune to that. I don't have that gene. Um, I research a car. I do a very non-emotional buy. But if you were to get me around a litter of, you know, like yellow labs that are right around six, seven weeks, eight weeks old, 
Man, that, there might be an emotional buy there. I mean, the balloons and giant American flag, those don't get me. But something about a little puppy, I go, man, I could almost see you doing that emotional thing. So some of you have your weak spots in one area and, in, and, and some of you in another area. But certainly people come back with bags of stuff sometimes and go, I just couldn't help myself. I mean, that ought to beg a, a deeper question, right? What's behind that? I mean, what is it that's driving that? Let's move on. Um, we, could, we could talk about the self. Why is it that I always, always, always put myself first? Why do I always choose the path of least resistance? Why am I so consumed with my comfort? Everything from furniture to your car to your office equipment to your home is about you and your comfort. I mean, we've, we've marketed to this as a, as a culture, and again, it's, it's really working. The last one I'll bring up is pride. Um, some in this room might tip toward the scale of seeing yourself as better than most. I mean, just, I don't know what it is. I just have that. But there's another side to pride, isn't there? And that is those who see themselves as worse than most. And either way, it'll kind of look like opposites, but they're really exactly the same thing. It's thinking of yourself most of the time. Whether in relation to how much better you are than everyone else around you and everyone else should get their act together, or self-loathing and saying, I am so much worse than every other person on here. Either way, the common denominator there is pride in that you're thinking on yourself. You're, you're mulling over self, self, self. I hope in that short list I've touched on something that makes your palms a tiny bit slight. Because probably in this room, maybe we've touched on all those that we kind of can relate to, but probably a couple of those really jump out and say, yeah, those are areas that I've walked away from a situation saying, I can't help myself, I don't know what happened. The sinful nature produces impulses in us. And those who are not, as we just sang, there's room at the cross and we're freed. We're no longer bound. Those who are not found in Christ are in what the Bible refers to as the natural state. Other places they call it, it's referred to as the flesh. It's just the way that we're born. We're born into a world that is under a curse. The world that is in a fallen uh, nature because of sin. And so, in essence, we are bound to do certain things. Here's the Gospel. The Gospel is being regenerated. It's being born again. It's, it's no longer being bound by the old nature, but being dead to the old nature and getting to rise in life, to rise again in newness of life and be a new creature in Christ. That's the, the simple gospel. I don't care what you've heard. I don't know what you may have been taught or what you think it is, but the good news, the gospel message is really quite simple. This is what Jesus came to to. To, to proclaim to people. He came to proclaim the fact that you are dead in your sin at birth and I have come. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no other way to the Father. There's no other way to life except through me. And of course, later on in his life, he went and acted on that and sealed the deal by dying on the cross and opening the path for us to no longer be bound to our old nature. This is a church vocab where, where we get things like saved. Are you saved? That's kind of a weird question, isn't it? To a person who's not from America or hasn't been around the church culture, that's a really weird question to walk up to someone on the street and ask. Are you saved? Saved from what? What are you talking about? But Christians talk a lot about being saved and about being rescued. 
and this whole idea of the good news and salvation, it's from this old nature, and it's to a new nature. Being born again um, allows, allows you to have some things go on in your life that otherwise wouldn't be there. Um, it allows you to have really a, a whole new identity. And right now, uh, there's, there's two children who are um, going to be, in the future, learning to walk in a new identity. There are preparations underway right now for these two kids um, legally being adopted into a family. And there's a, there's a movement of them being from an old nature into a new nature, and the process is going on right now. They're being pursued even though they don't know it yet. They are known right now even though they can't begin to imagine this new life that's in store for them. And the good news that they have no idea is happening is that they're being made into full access members of a forever family. They're being brought in and being invited into an inheritance. And I am talking about two new Carlson's that uh, you're looking at on the screen. Um, we had huge news go on on Friday in that we got our referral. And uh, we will be traveling in probably four to six months to um, go and legally make some things happen, Lord willing, so that these two uh, children will be ours. And so we would uh, covet your prayers, ask that you um, just be, uh, be praying for us and covering us in that. Um, and Lord willing, in probably seven months, eight months, something like that, they will be here at church with us, and uh, we trust that you'll welcome in uh, them into the family, as I, as I know that you will. So yes, I'm talking about the Carlsons, but here's what I'm really talking about. Here's the bigger picture. Don't, don't miss this. The bigger picture besides our children is this is the story of every born rebel who is now a Christian. Long before they went searching for a new family, long before they tried to get into the inheritance, long before they had anything in them that stirred them in that said, this old way of life, institutional living, not having a family, not knowing uh, where I'm headed, not being welcomed in, that's, that's, that's the pits. I need to go make something happen. Long before any of that happened, you, Christian, you, child of God, were being pursued by a father. You were known by a father. You were chosen by a father. You were provided for by a father. Do you see where the title's coming in now? You can't help yourself get saved. Any more than these two children, by the way, I know you'll ask, they're five and seven months old. The girl on the left is, uh, left, is uh, seven months old and the boy is five months old. Any more than a five or a seven-month-old could right now begin to uh, go through the legal process of allowing themselves to get adopted. That's the helpless state that Christ reached out to us in love and said, You're mine. I'm choosing you. I'm coming after you. You're going to be mine. Now, legally, after one trip to Ethiopia, we will we will have these children as our own. They will legally be our own children. We won't get to take custody of them for a couple of more months. 
So for a couple of months, you're going to see a couple of crazy people here while our children are in another country in an orphanage. Put that one on for a second and think about that. Pray for us. I said pray for us. It's going to be hard. But legally, they will have a brand new identity. They'll have a brand new life. Even though the reality of that, the fleshing out of that, won't begin to take place for several months. In the grand scheme of things, it'll all seem like a blink of an eye. Don't, don't you see the parallels of the Christian life? I mean, this is it. There's a, there's a moment in time when a rebel turns into a son and a daughter. And in an instant, we're given full access as family members. We have everything that we need. We have, we have all the resources needed. And we're blessed with them. Even though there's a certain unveiling that goes on as time moves on. What I've been talking about here is chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. That's a summary of chapters 1 to 3. It's the biblical word or the biblical doctrine of justification. It's this idea that you're saved in a moment, that you didn't pursue it, that you were chosen, that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're justified before the Lord. The second uh, half of the book is really all just about sanctification. It's how do we walk in this new life? What does it mean to be in this family? And... Paul really started Ephesians 4 with unity as he talked about this, about considering your calling. He started with unity, and now he begins to move on to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Read with me, follow along in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul's instilling here, this is not just my opinion, I say this by the authority of the Lord. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the way of life of God, from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let me stop there for a moment. Oftentimes we learn how to do something or what something is by looking at what it's not or by contrasting it and seeing it's not this and therefore it is this. What I'm doing this this morning is I'm going to look more at the old self. We're going to kind of break this up. But it would really behoove you to read on and see what it looks like to put on the new self. Because... What Paul does, he says, here's what, here's what you used to be. Here's how you used to walk before you were in Christ. Remember, this is written to all those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's written to the Christian. And he says, this is how you used to walk. This is the former manner of life that you used to live. For some, it wasn't that hard to remember. It's like, yeah, that was two weeks ago. I mean, I've, I've soaked in that my whole life. I remember that well, trust me. For some people, though, it's been, it's been a, a little bit longer time. And, and he's, he's bringing these things up. But he's not lingering there. What's, what's weird about this week is we're going to talk a little bit more about the old self without moving to the new, but it was too much to try and do it all in one week. I hope you see something in this passage. And, and um, we live in such a weird culture in a way that you, you can't call things out and immediately some of you at first read of this say, gosh, that sure is insensitive to people who are not Christians. That sounds like you're bashing them. That sounds like you're name-calling. 
Or maybe that's you in here this morning. You're saying, I'm not greedy. I'm not anxious to do every evil thing. Well, I'm not that bad. But the weight of this passage, and, and this is what just it keeps coming back to me, and, and um, what I want you to feel, what I want you to sense, is that sin ruins everything completely. Sin destroys to the uttermost. And if you don't get a sense of sin, if you don't get a sense of how God sees sin and what sin does, to call it a cancer is a lightweight name for it. It's even uglier and more destructive. It's not something we can manage with medication. It destroys everything it touches and it destroys it to the uttermost. Look at some of the things it says. It darkens the intellect. It hardens hearts. It deadens and creates calluses on those parts of our lives that we're meant to feel, that we're meant to sense. And sin creates this callous over it. A hardness over it. I've heard some of your stories. It's amazing to hear how God broke through your hardened heart. I love it. I never get sick of hearing people share with me how it is that, that God broke through their hard heart, their calloused heart. Some of you grew up hating the church and far from church. Some of you grew up in the church and hating the church and far from God. It doesn't really matter. At some point in time, all of us need a breakthrough. need a point in time where our calluses are broken and we're, uh, we're allowed to feel and sense again. It's interesting here that in talking about the old life, Paul really centers mostly around the intellect and the mind. Anyone know how much a human brain weighs, roughly? How much? No? Three pounds. You got it. Now, I haven't weighed mine recently, but they say the average, the average brain weighs three pounds. And this fruit inside of our melon is a huge mystery. So, I mean, all the advancements we have, it's still a huge mystery. We don't really understand all that's going on with the brain. I mean, it's, it's a giant question mark in a lot of ways. There was a controversy in Einstein's day. They realized Einstein obviously was a genius uh, in his day. And uh, here's the big controversy, that evidently his brain was preserved seven hours after his death. Someone got the bright idea, we should preserve this thing and, uh, you know, and see what's going on in there. The controversy is, it's unknown and unclear whether he knew about that in advance or even gave his permission. The big laugh is, he couldn't care less. I mean, he was dealing with bigger things at that point than who has his, his dead organ, right? I mean, that's, that's really the, the, the bottom line of it. Here's the thing. Studying Einstein's brain, dissecting it, putting it apart. I don't know what you do with that. With, I don't know how to start with that. But uh, it didn't really help. It didn't unlock somehow the secret of mysteries. Right? It didn't, didn't somehow give us his power to reason and some of the other things that, that went on there. However, they were on the right track. The mind is, is paramount to everything else. It's so important because your lifestyle, and by lifestyle I would say this, that would wrap up your, your worldview, your choices, uh, your, your actions. Really, ultimately, the, the, the legacy you live starts and centers in the mind. So the mind is, is utterly important. And that's why Paul spends so much time discussing different elements of the intellect and the mind. Christians act differently than unbelievers because they think differently. 
They think in a completely different way than an unbeliever. And I'm not talking about us in here and those bad people out there. I'm talking about us in here and us before we came to Christ. I mean, you act differently because you think differently. Think back to what you were before Christ. You were on a different path. You thought completely different. I want to just throw out a couple of things here for you and talk about the natural birth for a moment. At the natural birth, sin affected everything. Glenn Miller, some of you know Glenn. He's a pastor. He's in Zimbabwe right now. But Glenn said this often. I had, um, let's see, I had three of our kids while on staff with Glenn. And uh, Glenn would show up at the hospital and he would pick up our brand new child and he'd say, oh, you little ball of sin. And he would sit there and talk about what a sinner he was. And yeah, you look cute, but you're really a sinner. And I wanted to punch his lights out. I'm like, I know you're right. I know theologically that's true, but can't you just give me like a day of letting him be a chewing, chewing little baby, you know? But, but Glenn just didn't mince words. He just sat there and held my little ball of sin, you know? Now, later on, I was just saying, yeah, that Glenn was more right than he knew. Because all of them, I mean, we just see it. It's the natural birth, right? Sin affects us. It affects all of us. I don't care if you're of noble birth or not. Sin affects us. And because of that, um, it certainly affects our thinking. It affects the mind. The faculties of the mind are affected by the fall, by sin. So think about this. In, sport, in spiritual and moral issues, the natural man, and by natural man I would include women in that, the natural man and woman have faulty data points coming into them. They have a ruler that they think is straight, a measure that they think is straight, and they're checking things against it, and it's crooked. It's not right. It's not on. It's been affected by the fall. Listen to some of these passages. Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's the natural mind. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, or foolishness, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Let me give you one more. Titus 1.15 To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, <clears throat> nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled, which means corrupt or contaminated. That does not sound politically correct or nice. I don't necessarily recommend going up to your neighbor and finding out they're not a Christian and throwing these verses in their lap. But this is an accurate picture of what the natural mind is under. Just like your flesh is flawed, and those of you, the older we get, the more we say a hearty amen to that. When we're young and kind of in all of our glory, so to speak, we think that that's not true. But the older we get, our body starts breaking down. And we say, yeah, we see how the bodies have been affected by sin. The body's under a curse. Well, so it is with the mind. I think the term ignorant, calling someone ignorant in our culture, might be one of the most offensive kinds of things you could call someone. There's a lot of names you can call someone, but, but we live in a culture, much like the culture, by the way, that the people of Ephesus that Paul was writing to lived in, and that is a culture that prides themselves on education, a culture that prides themselves on being culturally in the know, scholarly. Certainly in this valley, as a youth pastor, I battled this all the time. 
parents that, from my perception at times, even more than desiring them to be like Christ, was that they got a great, great education. There's a weight to that. There's a... a Anyway, I'll move on. Um, so, so to call someone ignorant, to, to, to have these verses, it, it, it grinds against you if you've been in this valley and in this country for very long. That seems awfully pompous. It seems awfully uh, arrogant to, to, to say those things. And yet the Bible gives us this picture. Here is what a sin-scarred, sin-affected mind yields. Here's what it's capable of. Here's what it's not capable of. So I don't know how else to call it, but ignorance. A little metaphor that's used often in scriptures is blindness. But if someone's blind, it's not name-calling to say you're blind. It's just the reality of the state that they're in. And the Bible says that our minds are corrupt, are contaminated because of the fall. The mind was made by God. All things were created by Him and in Him and through Him and for Him. So catch this. If all things are made by God, that means our mind was intricately designed by God. We haven't come close to unwrapping that one like we talked about. But our brain, our intellect, our soul, all of that was made by God to receive God's revelation for God's glory. Sin comes in and disrupts that process. Therefore, as we see in the Scriptures, the natural mind cannot receive the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. John chapter 1, talking about Jesus, says this, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 1, says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there it is, these same themes that we're seeing in Ephesians being recounted elsewhere. And then two verses later in that same passage, Romans 1.25, one of the saddest verses in Scripture is this, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Parents, doesn't it anger you when your college student who's gone off and is allowed to make choices on their own has been duped by something? And you, and you prayed for wisdom, you prayed that they would hear your voice, but they've heard your voice for a long time and they were in a rebellious mode and they didn't hear your voice and they were just duped. It might be a boy or girl that ripped their heart out and stomped on it. And you're left there as family to pick up the pieces and to love them and to bring them back. There's a whole industry going after college students with regard to credit cards. And hook, line, and sinker, kids are buying into this, setting themselves on a path that is enslavement. It's nothing short of enslavement. And it will affect their marriages. It will affect their walk with Christ. It will affect their parenting. It will affect all these other areas of life. They're being t- sold a lie. They're being told a lie. 
And here's the kicker. We're not immune to it. Every time you sin, every time I give in to temptation, there's a Father in Heaven that's grieved by that, that sees the deceitfulness, the deception of sin. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Look at verse 19 with me again. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now again, some of us might want to be like some in the parables who want to justify themselves and want to ask a few follow-up questions to that. I would encourage you, I'd point you to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Some of you have acted on every kind of impurity and sensuality in this room. But all of you have fought on every kind of impurity and sensuality in this room. The Sermon on the Mount says this. It's not just an external thing that you can be nailed for. There's a heart motive. There's a heart deceitfulness. There's a a heart bent toward wickedness. And so it's devastating to read the Sermon on the Mount unless you have the Gospel. That's where, the, that's where the gospel becomes such good news. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus undoes everyone. You've heard it said this. Well, that's the external. You can still keep that and be a wicked person in your heart. But I say this, and he comes and he sheds light in the dark places of the heart and mind where we harbor all kinds of different wickedness. And so it undoes all of us. It puts us all at a level playing field, and we sing the song, There's Room at the Cross. We all come undone and helpless before the cross. And that's what makes the good news such amazingly good news. Some of you are guitar players in here, and when you first learn to play guitar, you're kind of fascinated because you're playing, you're playing, your fingers hurt and all this kind of stuff, but eventually you develop little calluses over your finger. And kind of a cool party trick is you can go up to a burner and put your finger on a burner and not feel it. Now, I don't recommend that. Um, I don't do that, but you, could, you, you, you actually could do that. Because you're, you're dead in there. You're hard in there now. Some skin has built up over there. And, and isn't, that, isn't that just how sin is? is? There's a hardness there and a deadness there to where we could be destroying ourselves. We could be burning our flesh literally and not feel it and feel immune to it. Even though potentially irreparable damage is going on with that. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's the callous that's being talked about. Some of you have family and friends that you can resonate with this callousness that's there. You try to talk to them or reason to them or discuss things with them and there's no feeling there. There's just coldness. There's just, there's just a hardness there. That's the natural birth. What about the spiritual birth? The first step in repentance, the first nuance of spiritual birth is really a change of mind. It's a change of mind about yourself. It's a change of mind about your spiritual condition. And it's a change of mind about God. No one comes to God with anything to offer. We come to God completely undone and we say, I give up. I can't help myself but sin. I need your help. And that's the moment where the gospel light floods in and it makes sense to us. Some of you in this room, perhaps, have tried and tried and tried 
to come to Christ, but you're still clinging to your own righteousness in some way, shape, or form. You don't form it quite that way, but there's still a self-reliance there. Year after year at Hume Lake, there would be kids who would come and they'd rededicate their lives. And I like the spirit of that, but I don't know about the... I'm not sure that's really the best thing to do because what would happen is, as a youth pastor, I'd rack my brain and say, God, what's the follow-up question I need to do so they don't come back next year and rededicate their life and become a Christian again? You can't keep coming back to life. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not how it goes. And what it was, was there was something that was still being clung to. There wasn't uh, a complete undoing. In a moment, the Gospel transforms. Light fills places where there used to be darkness. It used to be darkened in your mind and God fills you with light. You're able to see clearly life as it really is. Literally, everything changes. Those who used to run with, those who used to uh, hang with and just be friends with me, relationship, all those relationships change in, in a moment. And some of you have testimony of what First Peter chapter 4 is talking about. It says this, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans, those without God, that's all that means, choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Yes, the Bible knows all those words. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Some of you have had family members that suddenly turned on you. Said, oh, you're just holier than thou now. I got called a holy roller. I, I mean, there was no Wikipedia. I couldn't look that up. I didn't know what that meant exactly. But all of a sudden, people that used to be my friend and used to be okay with me were very much not okay with me. And in a moment, the gospel transforms. And in a moment, your brain uh, switches. There's, there's a whole different way of thinking. And those around you won't be content like the, the preaching says in our culture, says, let everyone just live. Live and let live. But that's not how it really goes down. The moment you become a light in the dark place, you will have abuse hurled at you. You don't have to be an obnoxious Christian to do that. That just comes. You don't have to be judgmental in your heart, mind, or tongue, or actions. That just comes. They will heap abuse on you. Look at me. Uh, look, look with me at verses 20 to 24 now. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. He just talked about the old nature and all those things. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. I want to close our time by challenging you to think biblically about our natures. We see in the movies some things that have skewed our thinking and it gets us uh, not thinking clearly, not thinking biblically. The Bible says that there's a new nature which replaces the old nature. The movies put a tiny little Dave in a devil suit over here and a tiny little Dave with the white dress on and wings floating over here, right? You've seen this. And there's a, there's a dueling nature that kind of goes on and you could be one or the other at any given moment. 
problem with that is that's not biblical. The Bible makes a statement, you're dead to your old self. You're dead to it. It, it further says, consider yourselves dead. Think about it. Wake up in the morning and say, I'm dead to the old self. The old self couldn't help but sin. I couldn't help but walk in darkness. I couldn't help but serve myself and build the kingdom of days. That's what I was enslaved to. I would not have put terms on it like that. But that's the reality that was there. And now I get to wake up in the morning and realize that sin no longer reigns in me. Because I've been purchased. Sin no longer reigns because my king has come and set me free and empowered me, enabled me to walk in this newness of life. And so I'm to regard or reckon myself dead to the old nature. As new creatures in Christ, as a new creation in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says that. So how does this occur? Let me give you two things. One is that you must be alive. Okay? Uh, where's Lucas? Was Lucas in the room? Oh, he's doing junior high. Okay. Um, I'll pick on Leo then. Leo, what priority is, if, if you show up on an emergency scene, by the way, Leo's not a banker. He's in the emergency field, so he, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on someone who knows this stuff. What priority would you place on a pulse? But I mean, like, as you approach a scene, how important is it to determine if there's a pulse? Very, so, I mean, one to ten, how, how important is it? Ten, okay. Does that mean it's most important or least important? Most important. Okay, okay, I got you. I was thinking, like, number one, important. Gotcha, we're on the same page. I, I was like, the whole illustration falls apart if it's, the, if it's the least important. So work with me on this. Now, now, here's why. I'm not in the medical field, and I don't walk up to emergency scenes on a regular basis. But if you walk up and you begin to treat other things, and there's no pulse whatsoever, isn't it standard reason that nothing else matters at that point? There's no sense in cleaning up uh, you know, all the blood that's everywhere. There's no sense in trying to be sure and set their, their neck in a neck brace so they don't move, so they, they might not get paralyzed. If there's no pulse, it doesn't matter. So being alive is of utmost importance. Okay? I mean, we're all... Everyone with me on that? No, you don't need coffee for that. That's just that's a given. We understand this. Okay? Um, here's the other thing. If someone is dead, you don't get mad at them for, for certain things. Okay? You don't get mad at a dead person for not tracking with your conversation. You don't get mad at a dead person for not laughing at your jokes or producing or helping out around the house. They're dead. You, you, you just accept that. You say, I'm not mad at you. You're just dead. Literally, you can't help yourself. I mean, you're dead. You can't do much else. Now, now take this image. Okay, we're going somewhere. Take this image, and I, I need you to, to translate this now to the spiritual. At the start of the Demanding series, and we pointed back to this almost every week, Jesus said this, you must be born again. If you don't get that you must be born again, you're a natural, you've had a natural birth, you must have a spiritual birth, or else all the other demands fall flat. When Jesus says, the new command I give to you, you must love one another as I have loved you, you can't possibly love like Jesus if you're dead. So that becomes totally irrelevant. If it says, be fruitful and multiply, if it says, be witnesses, 
It says walk in holiness. None of those things matter if you're dead. You must be born again. Okay, now we're alive. Now, how do we walk in this? How do we live in this? How do we move in this? A pulse is everything, just like on an emergency scene. You start there, and everything else begins to take place. Now, once you have a pulse, it brings with it certain things. Breathing comes along. Blinking comes along. Coughing, sneezing, eating, sleeping. These things, you can't help yourself. You're alive. It's your new nature. As a dead person, you can't help yourself sneeze, right? Let's go back to sneezing. You just, you, you can't do it. It's actually impossible. But once you're given a new nature, once you're alive, and once you're breathing, you have these things. You, you will now naturally do these things. You've all blinked hundreds of times today. You haven't thought about it until I just brought it up right now. It's this new nature. And the pulse is everything. So how does having the mind of Christ occur? You must be alive. And you say, but I can't help myself become alive. You're absolutely right, and that's the whole point of it. It's a gift of God. So while you're dead in your sins, to become alive to the things of God, to be born again, is totally a work of God. Flip over over to Ephesians 2 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of, of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There it is. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were all in the same boat. And then, but God shows up in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who's doing the work? It's God. Any more than you had anything to do with your physical birth, you, you don't make yourself alive. You can't will yourself into wanting to change and please God. Verse 8 goes on to say this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why are you striving to earn grace? What a great line that we just sang. Lay it down. Rest in the finished work of Christ. We also can't help ourselves, once we've been given life, to sustain life even. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul's writing to a church and he just gives this nasty list of things. These are the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives this whole list and he says this, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Church leaders, Sunday school teachers, nursery care workers, AV guys, such were some of you. All of us used to walk in something. But you were washed. Who's, who's passive and who's active here? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the good news. I didn't do the washing. I didn't do the sanctifying. I won't do it for you. I can't do it for you. And you certainly can't do it for yourself. It's a work of God. First Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Jesus, John 17.17, 17, praying to the Father, says, 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What I want to drive home to you is that you can't help yourself in becoming holy. I don't want you to walk away from this message having read about how we're supposed to think different and think that I just need the right book. There's got to be a book to help me think better. I would say that that's true. It's right here. However, even the Bible, you, you've tried this maybe some of you. You've picked up the Bible. You've tried to read it. And the spiritually discerned things aren't going on because you're dead to them. And the mind that's set on the flesh is dead to the things of God. It cannot discern spiritual matters. One more tension that I'm not going to touch on much today because we just don't have time is the idea of faith and works. This is what I sort of began to start with. I just spent five minutes telling you, you can't help yourself. You can't do it. It's the work of God. You can't make yourself become alive. All of that is absolutely biblically true. But some of you know your Bibles well enough that you're already rolling through some scriptures in your mind. You're saying, yeah, but what about? You might go to uh, to 2nd Peter chapter 1 you have everything you need for life and godliness it's all been given to you it's all been done for you and then two verses later he says this therefore make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and so on and so forth so that verse might be rolling around your mind James is starting to percolate. You say, yeah, but faith without works is dead, Dave. There's got to be works. There's got to be things going on. And there is. There is a way to walk in newness of life. You're not just to get saved and then sit in a comfy chair until the Lord comes back. But if you get up and you go try to do this on your own, you're like a dead person trying to do all this stuff. You cannot do it. You must be born again. Enough about the tension. Take the tension to your small group. It's good that you think that way. I want you to think that way. I want, when I say one side of the tension over here, I want your brains, church, to be thinking, yeah, but what about over here? That's good. That means you're discerning. That means you're growing up in your thinking. That means you're, you're, you, you know your word well enough to, to say, gosh, there's a tension there. And there's probably seasons of time where whole churches or individuals or families lean on one side or the other. We rest so much and that it's all God that we're kind of get just lazy and we just are just bumps on a log. And then there's other times where we start to realize, wow, I'm really over here trying to earn my way back into God's good graces. What could I possibly do? You know, what could I do to do that? So that's, that's dumb. I need to get off of that. So there is a tension there and I want you to live in it because the Bible reveals it that way. This only underscores the importance of the renewing of, a, of the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self. The first thing was that you must be made alive. Sorry, I didn't give you the click. Um, the second thing is to put off and to put on. To put off and to put on is the idea of just putting off the old self, considering yourself dead to it, and, and walking in this newness. When a person becomes a Christian, God renews the mind. Once dark, ignorant, calloused, and wicked is now enlightened, learned in the truth, sensitive to sin, righteous, and holy. Isn't that shocking to you? It was shocking to me when God did a work in my life to suddenly be sensitive to sin areas that I had no problem with the month before. I mean, literally. No, it didn't, I didn't give it a second thought. And all of a sudden, I was stopped dead in my tracks to go do something that was habit for me. And I thought, man, I can't do that anymore. And just when I thought I had discovered all of them, six months later, a new thing was popping up. 
It wasn't even on my radar to be concerned about confessing that sin. I, I wasn't even remotely sensitive to that. And all of a sudden, that began to take hold. And here it is, um, I don't know, a couple decades later, and God's still revealing things. New areas of my life that I thought, boy, I've, I've done that for a long time as a Christian. I've done that for a long time as a pastor. And that's wicked. That's offensive to my God. I need to stop doing that. I need to change to that. That's the renewed mind that God gives to Christians. But it's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, continual process. Listen to this quote by Oswald Chambers. Until a man is born again, his thinking goes round and round in a circle, and he becomes intoxicated with his own importance. When he is born again, there is a violent readjustment in his actual life. And when he begins to think along Jesus Christ's line, there is just as tremendous a revolution in his thinking processes. A married person understands this well. There was a day you were single. In a moment, you became married. And all of a sudden, you started to walk in married life. And there were times when you, you would, by nature, go and start to do something and say, oh yeah, that's the single guy that, that would do that. As a married guy, I need to think differently now about that. And as time passes... You, you get more and more into this role of being married and this new status and understanding what that is. Being renewed in your mind, your attitude, your will is a reality, but you either compete or cooperate with God in this process. You ever wonder where desires come from that are good in you? I mean, where, where there once was an evil desire, there's now a good desire welling up in you. Where once there was kind of a callousness, all of a sudden there's compassion. You ever wonder, like, where did that come from? Where, where once you, you longed to amuse yourself and not think, that's what amusement is. Now there's a, a hunger for the Word and to engage your brain and to work out your brain in thinking about really important matters. Where once there was judgment or dismissal, all of a sudden there's understanding and a longing to know people and engage with people. Those are desires that well up from a renewed mind. Do you notice that Paul does not say, now that you're a Christian, read your Bible, memorize some things, and go do it. Instead, he talks about this renewing of the mind. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Here's why it's so important. You will make a thousand choices over the next month that's absolutely nowhere to be found in the Bible. You, you were all faced with decisions about what to wear. You all look pretty nice today, by the way. You all, I mean, you all, you all had... You all had choices about what to wear, about what to eat, about what you're going to do with your time in a few minutes. Those aren't specifically spelled out in the Bible. Therefore, there's a renewing of the spirit of your mind that needs to go on. You must be transformed in your way of thinking because that's really the, the nerve center. It's the starting place of what your lifestyle is going to end up being all about. Let me invite the band up. And I close with uh, this question. This title, I can't help myself. Does it produce shame or joy in you? 
I mean, after hearing what you've heard, after seeing the text today, does the idea of I can't help myself bring about shame or joy? If it's shame, let me throw this out to you. Perhaps that's because sin still reigns. The enemy has a foothold in your life and he hurls that at your identity and says, you're still enslaved to sin. You've never really been brought to life. Let me just say this, the gospel is for you. Jesus said that the tiniest mustard seed of faith is all it takes. Maybe some of you for the first time have realized or heard today, man, that's what the gospel is? It's me simply coming completely undone with nothing to offer God and trust in His provision for me? I want in on that. I want that. The gospel's for you. If I can't help myself predominantly produces a message of shame in you, helpless sinner, don't try and save yourself. Receive from God. That's the simple message of the gospel. If I can't help myself produces in you joy, then you understand that you couldn't help with your new birth and you can't help but follow where Jesus leads you. You're drawn there. You can't help yourself. Some of you, I, I, I love hearing where God's taking you. Because it's so exciting. Because we, we sit in dialogue and we say, man, this isn't from you. I can promise you that, that us getting the joy of adopting these two kids, I, that did not well up in Dave's mind and heart. I didn't draw that up and dream that up. That is the Master beckoning me around the next bend and me just, just following. That's all that is. God has great things in store for your life. He will be faithful to conclude and complete the work that He began in you. If I can't help myself bring the message of joy, my message to you is this. Continue to trust in the work of Jesus in your life. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And finally, Philippians 4, 8. Passage some of you have memorized. It says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's pray. God, we praise You that this morning we have heard spelled out in your revealed word things that we know we can rest our minds on and be faithful to Philippians 4.8. God, would you wake up minds that have gone numb to the deceitful lies that are all around us. We confess to you this morning that we are desperate for your grace on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis to train our minds to walk in the newness of life, to understand that we have the mind of Christ 
that You've chosen to reveal to us Your heart and Your will. God, forgive us if we've been training our minds, soaking our minds for six days out of the week in pagan schools of thought. Schools of thought that don't involve you and exclude you on purpose. And then once a week come and think like a Christian. And then wonder and even cry out to you why it is that we naturally go the pagan way when tested. That we naturally fall into pits of despair and worry and anger if our minds have been soaking. God, we thank You for doing a work in our lives. We pray, Father, that we would lean wholly and completely on You to just continue that work. In Jesus' name, Amen.